It has to be one of the most pivotal elections in U.S. history as Americans go to the polls on November 3rd. What will be the impact on Canada-U.S. relations? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The countdown is on to determining the next president of the United States. While Joe Biden has been flirting with an 8-10 to 10 point lead, as 2016 showed us, anything can happen. Donald Trump's unpredictability and protectionist bents have rubbed many leaders the wrong way. The U.S. being Canada's largest trading partner, Canada has also felt that wrath several times over the last four years. We have enjoyed the longest undefended border in the world, but that's been shuttered since March due to the COVID pandemic. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at what's on the line for Canada-U.S. relations ahead of the vote. Mark High is the president of the Canada-U.S. Business Association, and he joins us now. And Mark, let's just Describe for the listeners, your members, where, where is your association pretty well based out of and, and what do you cover? Well, hi, thanks. Thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate the, the chance to, to share our little story uh, with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Canada-U.S. Business Association, we're uh, based in the Detroit, Windsor, Southeast Michigan, Southwest Ontario area, uh, really cover... Um, from Grand Rapids, Michigan, up to London, Ontario, I'd like to say, and, and beyond. Um, a lot of uh, uh, small, medium-sized businesses uh, are uh, participants, participants with us, um, certainly pro- pro- professional firms, but um, also companies like FCA Canada, Magna, and, and groups like that um, work really closely with the Windsor-Essex Chamber and the Detroit Regional Chamber. And, and I think for a lot of people, the Detroit Windsor corridor is is like the biggest transportation hub, uh, or at least in terms of trade hub, uh, in North America. Is it not? Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, everybody probably knows uh, the numbers. Uh, sort of seven hundred billion dollars in uh, goods and services uh, cross our borders uh, every year, and about a quarter of that uh, goes right through Detroit Windsor. Uh, certainly, when you include Port Huron, Sarnia. Mm-hmm. Now, for your association and your members, what kind of growth have they seen over the last four years between 2016 and 2020 prior to the pandemic? Yeah, well, um, it certainly has been a continuation uh, of the, the growth uh, from the uh, last recession, I guess, 08, 09, um, uh, very strong uh, and uh, Certainly in Detroit itself, I mean, we know what the, what the autos have done uh, in the last uh, half dozen years, but certainly in Detroit, we've had a great uh, renaissance. So we like to call ourselves the renaissance city um, of uh, people moving downtown, uh, restaurants opening, uh, um, some retail, uh, just uh, continued uh, growth in, really in the uh, three or four county region here. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a good run. What, what, what was driving that growth? Well, I think uh, a, a lot of uh, young young kids uh, like to uh, be in the big city, uh, and so um, uh, including my oldest daughter has moved into into Detroit. So um, it, it's it's just great fun to to see all the arts and and uh, and culture developing down there. Mark High is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. He's president of the Canada-U.S. Business Association. As we discuss the Canada-U.S. relationship just ahead of the U.S. election coming up on November 3rd. And we talked about your members, and we've seen growth over the last four years prior to the pandemic. What's the impact of the pandemic been on them since March? 
Uh, well, I think like uh, a lot of uh, cities, I mean, uh, across both countries, it's gotten very quiet downtown. Um, uh, some groups are doing very well, uh, like at my law firm, uh, Dickinson Wright. I'm in the Detroit office. Uh, some groups are doing very well. The employment people uh, have been very busy uh, during this whole time. Uh, the M&A folks, it's been a little quieter for the last uh, several months, although even that's picking up. And and of course, you know the, the key the key to this is is the border. And while it appears Americans would like to see it reopen, Canadians for the most part do not. How do you convince Canadians it's the right thing to open up the border with the U.S.? Uh, well, that's that's an interesting uh, question. I think here, I mean, Windsor and Detroit. If I was in my office, I'd be looking out the window, and, and less than a mile away across the Detroit River is is Windsor. Uh, so we're very closely tied together. Um, 3,000, 4,000 medical personnel come over from Windsor every day. Uh, we have um, buses and taxis running uh, between the two cities uh, in a normal uh, time. So uh, I think Windsor understands that, uh, that the two uh, cities are very, uh, two countries are tied together very well. Uh, and I think Canada uh, as a whole understands that as well, as in something like 80% of the country live within 100 miles of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, they do have uh, concerns uh, uh, that uh, are probably legitimate ones. Um, and uh, we have to find a way to allow uh, people to go back and forth um, in a way that, that does provide comfort uh, to, to both countries that there isn't a problem. And, and, there's and a bit- you know, when you think about it, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no, you go ahead I'll, and I'll finish up. Yeah, well, um, if you think about it, uh, there's been a lot of transit across the borders uh, without any problems. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the um, trucking uh, has continued this whole time. Uh, food, uh, ag, um, manufacturing, um, you know, the, the, the truck traffic at the Ambassador Bridge has not really um, dropped much in the last uh, six months. Uh, plus those professionals going back and forth. And I know some business people that are able to go back and forth. Uh, and there hasn't been a problem from that. So um, I think we may be looking at a simplistic solution uh, to a problem that may not really exist. And we wanted to talk about this uh, pilot project for, for international travelers. Your association is is very interested in that. Well, it's not just international travelers. There's a couple of border crossings as well that are going to be sampled, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Just uh, in the last week uh, to Alberta, I think, that's worked out uh, a program, a pilot program with the Canadian federal government uh, to do testing uh, at, uh, at the airports and at least one uh, land crossing up there. Uh, where they um, do testing, and then uh, um, that can uh, mitigate having to do uh, the two-week quarantine, the 14-day quarantine that would otherwise apply. Uh, and that's a great, uh, uh, you know, there are several of us on, on both sides of the border that are, that are working at trying to come up with a plan. That's a great first step to, to use the technology uh, rather than sort of a blunt force 14-day uh, quarantine uh, where it doesn't really um, may not be necessary. Yeah, it seems uh, in a lot of situations, depending on which government's in charge, uh, a lot of them are using a hammer to kill a fly here, and and you know, <laughs> I guess the impact is is 
economic is is devastating. Yeah, well, it's a big fly, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. uh, the hammer is is probably a, a, an overkill device. So, um, yeah, we'd like to think, uh, and you know, part of it is the testing has developed uh, over the last uh, several months, and um, it costs money to do that sort of thing. You got um, you got to come up with with budget to to address it, but um, you know, the effects are so um, severe that there's got to be a better way than just uh, uh, closing everything down. And considering the two candidates for the election, um, I, I'm guessing the association doesn't have a preference. You'll work with everybody or anybody? Well, we certainly uh, will work with uh, everybody and anybody, uh, um, but some people may be easier to work with than others. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we like uh the ability to, to be able to understand what uh, is going on and, and have some confidence as to what will happen, uh, you know, next week, next month, <laughs> uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, it's, it's a little, uh, a little unclear and it's hard to make plans if you don't know, uh, what's going to happen, uh, uh, you know, around the corner. Yeah. That's, that's the issue. You know, when everything's up in the air, if nothing feels, you know, you have no stability, but to, you know, to base yourself on. That's right. Um, so, yeah, we uh, are um, looking forward to, to seeing what happens uh, next week. It's uh, very close at hand at this point. Um, everybody is mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. waiting with bated breath. Exactly. Mark, I, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, I uh, appreciate the chance, Ed. Love, love to, to stay in touch. Mark High is the president of the Canada-U.S. Business Association. As mentioned, the overwhelming majority of Canadians would support a Joe Biden presidency. Polling also shows Donald Trump has one of the lowest approval ratings as a leader. Frank Graves is the president of Ecos Research, and he joins us now. And Frank, how engaged are Canadians in this U.S. election? They're deeply engaged. Uh, they're probably uh, paying much more attention to the U.S. election right now than they are to their own political scene. Uh, and I don't know how it would compare through time, but I'm guessing they're probably as uh, that the levels of engagement and attention to the U.S. election are probably at an all-time high in Canada. And may, that may be the case in the United States as well, if we were to judge from the incredible turnout, which has already been registered in the United States. What does this election mean, mean for the United States? Well, I think it's a historic election, and certainly that's the view of Canadians. I've asked them this question in, in polling. I've asked them, do you think that uh, the United States is on the verge of chaos? And 80% of Canadians agree. Uh, uh, almost three-quarters of Canadians think that for the United States to pull out of what they see as a I don't, death spiral might be a bit of a, a hyperbole, but certainly a, a really uh, an incredible uh, erosion of performance in the face of the pandemic, they think there has to be a regime change uh, and for the United States to have to have a chance at recovering. Uh, so, yeah, the stakes are huge, and uh, they're not just huge for the United States. Canada is not voting in this, but obviously, this is our critical economic partner, our our political ally, our strategic ally. So, I know that Canadian outlook on the United States is at an all-time low that we've had periods and i've been tracking it for many decades where canadians have been alarmed at where the united states is going uh, i didn't pull back then but i'm sure we would go back to 
things like the Vietnam War, but more specifically uh, uh, Bush and the Iraq War. Uh, there was real, real concerns in Canada about whether that was in the right direction. But the numbers we're seeing today in terms of the rating of the U.S.-Canada re relationship, it's at a historical nadir. The trust or confidence or approval in the current incumbent, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, is at a level that we've never seen. Uh, he's registering an approval rating in Canada of about 15%. This is not uncommon. A few uh, polls on these questions around the world, and uh, he, 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 they're consistently finding the approval rating for the pre current President of the United States the lowest in their tracking as well. But just to put that in context, that 15% when uh, uh, Obama left office, his approval rating was about 75%. So it's, um, and we've never seen an approval rating, even in the darkest period where people were really annoyed, angry with George Bush's approval rating in Canada was never dropped mm -hmm. below 30%. So yeah, there's deep concerns. Uh, there's uh, the Canadians overwhelmingly think that the United States has made the pandemic a much worse problem, not just for the United States, but for Canada. They feel that as well about China. So, uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're on the edge of their seats, kind of wondering what's going to happen uh, in, I guess, five days now. How would you characterize Canada-U.S. relations right now? Well, it, from, a, from, the, uh, from a, I mean, the, 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 from a public perspective, the Canadians rate the relationship with the United States is the worst uh, that we've ever seen. Uh, the incidents that people say they would like to become, that they would like to become more like the United States or less like the United States, we've the highest numbers ever, those saying we'd like to become less like the United States. Now, that's quite different from, you know, the world of, of uh, democracy and, uh, and, 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 and relations at the, at the government level. I suspect that's all on, largely on hold right now with a few exceptions. I think there was announcements on aluminum and a, uh, we were exempted, but basically everything's on hold pending the election. Uh, and I would say the relationship between the governments at the officials level, you know, was, wasn't great, but it wasn't nearly as bad as this, the sort of the public perception of the relationship, which is frankly awful. Frank Graves joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. He's the president of Ecos Research as we talk about the Canada-U.S. relationship just ahead of the 2020 U.S. election, and we talk about the U.S., our biggest trading partner. Yet, when things go south, you have, you know, Canada has pretty well all its eggs in one basket, the American basket. Is this a sign where Canada needs to diversify more? Well, certainly Canadians are telling us that. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, they're telling us that at the same time that the other prime candidate for diversification, which was China, is really falling off the radar as a preferred trading partner for Canada, for Canada for a variety of reasons, some of them related to the pandemic, some of them related to the two Michaels. But yeah, so we've got this situation where Canadians are feeling very, very wary of the two largest economies and principal potential trading partners. The, the relationship with the United States will recover. I mean, geography, history, economics, politics mean that this will recover. The other thing that we've seen though, which is notable, uh, interestingly, Canadians want to strengthen relationships with Europe right now in terms of trading. The, uh, but there has been some diminution of Canadians' appetite for uh, globalization in general, but trade liberalization in particular. <clears throat> this pandemic has laid bare the fragility of, of global supply chains as it applied certainly to things like 
health, health uh, PPE and vaccines, but it's also spilled over into a desire to re- recreate a made-in-Canada manufacturing capacity. Uh, and you may see that, uh, which when we compare, and I've asked polling questions on this that have been asked in Europe and the United States, Canadians are really strongly committed, more so than those countries, to rebuilding our manufacturing capacity, partly as a response to not being vulnerable to the kind of um, uh, fragility of the supply, global supply chains that they've seen before. And it's also just a bit of a, an inward movement, uh, Canadians uh, feeling a little more insular, a little uh, uh, more in favor of thicker borders, a little less likely to say we want to go outside of the country, have people come here. Is that an ephemeral response or will Canadians return to being a very open society? I think they'll return to being an open society, but the impact so far have been dramatic. Now, one of the, uh, I guess, the wild cards in this whole thing leading up to November 3rd is uh, concern about a possible transition of power. We've heard that it might not exactly be smooth. Does that concern you or Canadians? No, no, Canadians are, and I have tested on this, Canadians are worried that the United States is on the brink of potential uh, civil unrest and violence, maybe even a civil war, not a civil war like in Spain or in the United States in the 1860s, but maybe something more like the kind of troubles that Ireland experienced uh, for so long, Mm. uh, that you've got uh, armed uh, militia showing up at, uh, you know, state legislatures, plots to kill leaders. This is, you know, this is an unprecedented period. And the division and polarization that we see in the United States, and we've measured it, I polled in the United States, uh, recently, and uh, this rising authoritarian populism, which has gripped a significant part of the American public, it's it's not a healthy force. There's various forms of populism which work out okay. Uh, no, things like, for example, the New Deal and FDR's pop was a populist vision which ushered in uh, the rise of the middle class. But most of this type of authoritarian populism it ends up either deeply disappointing or in a disaster, as it did in Europe in, with the rise of fascism and Nazism. And I'm not predicting anything that ominous, but the, um, this force is, a, is, a, is a, a, a largely misunderstood and dangerous force, and it's definitely at play. It's, by, it's by at play in Canada, by the way. We think that uh, we're somehow immune and are, we've inoculated and none of this happens. Uh, I've been doing research showing that a lot of this force is uh, present in Canada, and it's produced a rapid polarization and sorting of the Canadian uh, electorate in ways that doesn't resemble what it looked like a decade ago. And this is, most Canadians are largely oblivious to this. I was just reading a, an international study done by some Dutch scholars, no, sorry, Swedish scholars yesterday that showed that Canada, along with the United States, had in fact experienced the most intense polarization over the last 30 years, and it was continuing. Uh, they were measuring this by looking at what they called effective engagement, which is whether you thought the other party, uh, you know, whether you saw them emotionally as in really negative terms or not. In both countries, there is this real hostility and uh, animus uh, towards the other party, which was not the case uh, not that long ago. Frank, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Frank Graves is the president of Ecos Research. Those who don't recall history are doomed to repeat it, according to the old saying, and to realize where we are in Canada-U.S. relations 
we need to look back. Christopher Sands is a senior research professor and the director of the Center for Canadian Studies at John, Johns Hopkins University. And, and Chris, how would you describe the last four years of Canada-U.S. relations? Well, it's it's funny. I think it's a bit of a split personality. On the one hand, um, the day-to-day relationship uh, between the government departments and officials and so on has actually been really good. Um, I think all the people who work so hard to, whether it's manage the border or uh, help coordinate uh, economic policy, have been doing pretty well. But the headliner, the politicians, the, the top end of the relationship has really been shaken by frankly, the unpredictability and unconventionality of U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, he, he isn't a standard issue U.S. president. I think even his supporters would uh, would agree with that assessment. And so that's meant that for Canadians, you just never know what you're going to get from Washington, D.C. these days. <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Now, when we talk about those political leaders um, and the relationship between the two countries, has it ever been worse than, than it has been in the last four years? Not on a sustained basis. So, you know, uh, Canadians will remember the um, uh, the harsh words between uh, Richard Nixon and, uh, and and Pierre Trudeau. They'll remember Lester Pearson and Lyndon Johnson having a having a dust up where Johnson reportedly picked up uh, Lester Pearson by his lapels. So we've definitely had those moments, and we had we've had some smaller uh, problems where. For example, when um, when Canada decided under Jean Chrétien not to participate in in the Iraq War, um, there was some frosty feelings uh, in Washington because he chose to uh, string out the talks and then say, "Well, as a matter of principle, he could never say yes," which seemed to waste a lot of time for the Americans. So there have been moments like that where where things have been bad, but they're much more episodic. You know, usually it's a it's a bad meeting, it's a bad moment, maybe even a bad month or two. And then we get back to business. Um, really, uh, I think the relationship was always uh, a little bit shaken up, particularly, though, after Canada hosted the G7 in Charlevoix, Quebec. And following that meeting, uh, President Trump said um, that he thought that uh, that Justin Trudeau was was weak and a backstabber. And uh, and from that moment on, you know, the personal relationship between them, they still have had calls. They still dealt with each other. But the personal relationship has been quite frosty. Yeah, I, I I think we've read, seen a lot about that. You know, Canada appears to be caught in the in the dispute between the U.S. and China over the Ming uh, Wanzhou Huawei issue. Would it get better under a potential Biden administration? No, I don't. I don't think the um, the China situation will get better. I've been really surprised that Republicans and Democrats on the Hill and um, and, and around Washington have really. Uh, hardened their line on China. Uh, there had long been a, a feeling going back to the Clinton administration supporting China's peaceful rise and integration into the international community. But uh, these days, whether it's theft of intellectual property, um, the way that they've handled Belt and Road, the South China Sea uh, aggression, uh, there seems to be a very strong feeling that, that China needs to be confronted by the United States in both parties. And I think the particular challenge for a Biden administration, if if uh, former Vice President Biden wins next next week, the problem for for him is that he has been um, involved with China relations, suggesting that the Chinese are nice people and so on. Um, and and as as his son's business dealings, we get more attention. I think it will be hard for Joe Biden to be as friendly to China 
as he might like to be, because the accusation will be he's going soft on China because of um, past payments mm-hmm. or, or corruption. And so in order to kind of escape that, I think he has to be tough on China, uh, perhaps not as, as, as tough as uh, Donald Trump, but I think he'll sustain that policy, for, unfortunately, because I think it puts Canada in a very tricky position. Very much so. Uh, let's talk about energy policy. Now, uh, Trump, we know, is good for oil, and Biden's talking about clean energy. So from the Canadian perspective, which way would you want to side? Well, it's, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm a, I happen to feel that, that Joe Biden is actually your best bet in Canada because he's a bit of a double win. Um, first of all, he, he has been very critical of hydrofracturing, which has been responsible for this huge boom in U.S. oil and gas production. And if he does put restraints on it, even just restraining activity on federal land, that will lower U.S. oil and gas production, which will open up space for the country that has long been our number one foreign supplier of of energy in all forms, but particularly oil and gas, and that's Canada. So you get a, you get a win there. At the same time, Joe Biden is a is a very centrist Democrat, and although he has uh, signed on to a lot of the the rhetoric of the Green New Deal that's been proposed by progressive members of his party, there's also a um, an element in his his traditional approach which favors alternatives. And I think there are two that Canada stands to benefit from. One is a recognition of hydropower as renewable. This is something not all environmentalists agree with, but it's a it's a sensible centrist course. And that could open up the path to more imports from Canada, not just from Hydro-Quebec, but from uh, from places like uh, Manitoba or, or British Columbia, if we can sign a Columbia River Treaty. The other is small modular nuclear reactors. The technology's moved uh, very far forward now. And if you look at the U.S. Midwest, um, it's probably the most energy-starved energy uh, market. I mean, they really need a lot of energy to run manufacturing plants in the Midwest. And um, and yet, typically, they just don't have a lot of local uh, supplies. So nuclear has long been very popular in the Midwest in places like Ohio and Michigan and Illinois, where we have a number of facilities. I think there's a real opportunity there, and Atomic Energy of Canada Limited um, is is a leading purveyor for for Canada to also sell nuclear. And of course, that has a knock-on benefit for uranium mining, uh, including in, in Saskatchewan and other parts of Canada. So I think on an energy front, Joe Biden is, is pretty much the best opportunity you get. But even if Trump is re-elected, that's not all bad news. Trump's been much more supportive of completing the Keystone Pipeline uh, and also, we've seen a lot of progress on TMX plus Enbridge's Line 3 and Line 5. Uh, early in the next administration, the potential for Canada not only to have more secure, stable access to the U.S. market, but also access to the sea through which they can reach a number of countries, I think is a, is a big positive. The arguments that some environmentalists have made is we don't want to perpetuate the fossil fuel economy, and that that's fair. But where Canada could be incredibly important is as a bridge for countries um, like China, but all over the developing world that are more coal dependent or using other less savory kinds of energy. Um, Oil is especially uh, uh, low carbon intensity oil, which is what Alberta is trying to shift the oil sands to, would be very good for those countries um, until they are wealthy enough to actually begin looking at some of the the new alternatives like wind power and, and certainly nuclear. So I, I think there's a very good story for Canada's energy, and I know that's something that people in uh, the energy sector will want to hear because we've had some really bad years uh, lately for for everyone involved, and 
a lot of unemployment in that sector. So it might be good news, whoever wins. COVID-19, the U.S. is over 225,000 deaths. From your perspective, will the handling of the pandemic be the key issue of this election? I think it's hard to say. It's certainly one of the one thing that we're all talking about. And it's, uh, it's an issue that has really split people in the sense that what I do, uh, teaching, uh, I can do online. It's, the students don't like the online classes as much as they like seeing me because I'm I'm funny and I usually bring cookies to class. Uh, but but uh, on the other hand, a lot of a lot of ordinary Americans who work in jobs you can't telework for. I, I think about my my car mechanic, or um, uh, sometimes I, I think about people who do uh, medical jobs. Obviously, on the front lines here, they just can't telework. And in many of those sectors, they've been out of work and out of income. Like Canada, the U.S. has provided some funds for those individuals to help them get through this, but it, but it's not been uh, not been an easy time. The question is, who do they blame? Do, do people who've found this to be a really tough time look at uh, President Trump and say, you're the one uh, who did this to me, or, you know, so we got to get rid of you? Or do they look at him and say, you know, this is a global mess. There aren't very many countries that really have uh, a perfect record. Uh, people talk about Sweden, even Canada doing well, but there's still been problems everywhere. And so oh, yeah. if they look at this as just sort of a natural disaster and see Trump as having done his best, uh, that might be enough to save him. I'd add one other thing. Like Canada, the U.S. has had a federal federalism sort of response in the sense that it's been U.S. states that do most of the local public health uh, work, including getting people tested and getting them, uh, hopefully, vaccine shots down the road. It's also U.S. states that made the decisions on closing the economy down. And states like Wyoming have been willing to open up more because they haven't had much incidence and they're pretty remote states without a lot of density, a solution that wouldn't work in a New York or or Mm -hmm. California. And so that variety means that different people are experiencing the pandemic in different ways. And I think when Canadians look down, they see the, the bad news. Bad news travels better than the good news. But there are parts of the country, and a lot of it is Trump country, where people are much happier with where, they're, where they are right now, um, and they're having a better experience. And so that's key, because th- coming up, uh, th- they're doing better financially, and their economy getting back on track will help get Canadian exports to the U.S. back on track. And that's something that we'll both need as we try to get the economy going again. One of the comments that uh, came out the last week uh, coming from uh, Donald Trump, if he did lose the election, was a possible not a peaceful transition of power. And and does that concern you? It it does and it doesn't. Um, Ever since the 2000 election of was sort of the famous Bush v. Gore election that went all the way up to the Supreme Court over the hanging chads in Florida. Mm -hmm. It's become standard practice that every presidential campaign has a platoon of lawyers ready to challenge election results or any irregularities. And because the U.S. administers elections in a decentralized fashion, they have to have that platoon of lawyers uh, in every one of the 50 states and all of the territories in order to challenge results. So that's now become standard practice. Not only that, many people criticized Al Gore for conceding too early in 2000. Uh, They also criticized Mitt Romney when he conceded early in 2012 and Hillary Clinton when she conceded in the 2016 election. So now it's almost the expectation there'll be a challenge. And I I know we're going to have a lot of lawyers having a, a field day and lots of billable hours. But I think that the dust will settle fairly quickly if we have a, a clear uh, winner. 
um, hopefully clear enough. There, and we will inaugurate someone on the 20th of January. That, that's an inflexible date uh, in the U.S. Constitution, so we, we have to do that. Now, then the question is, um, do we trust that Donald Trump will go peacefully if he loses? And my view is he will, but not necessarily in a way that's good news for Joe Biden. Um, I don't think he's going to try to have a coup or force the military to drag him out of the White House. I think that's sort of a cable TV fantasy, uh, mm-hmm. soon to be a Hallmark classic movie. But I think Donald Trump, if he does not win, will retain a very strong following in the United States. And because he believes that Democrats tried to sandbag his administration from the beginning with what he views to be rather exaggerated, phony conspiracy theories, the Russian involvement, the Ukraine involvement, the various things, I think he will, um, I think he'll look for revenge. And what I mean by that is uh, on Twitter, on social media, on TV, on radio, possibly with his own TV station, constantly hammering uh, the Democrats and the Biden administration, exploiting differences between a more centrist Joe Biden and a more progressive uh, wing of the party that has been pushing much for much more radical change, including things like the Green New Deal. And he'll try to make Washington as ungovernable for Biden as it was for him. Now, for better or for worse, uh, Donald Trump survived all of that um, interference in administration and was able to, to actually achieve some things. Joe Biden, not only because he's older, but also because he isn't really at the center of his own political party, and because no one expects him to run for re-election, I think we'll have a hard time coping with uh, with disruption from from Donald Trump. So while I think that he will leave office if he does lose, I think that he will be with us for some time, and not necessarily in a way that's very good for getting things done in Washington. Do you have a prediction on the outcome on November third? Oh well, yeah, that uh, my prediction, and uh, I think. $3 will get you coffee at Starbucks. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's really not worth very much. But I, if I if I were putting money down, I actually think that Donald Trump will get reelected. And I don't say that enthusiastically, but all of the last four presidents have, who've gone for re-election have won it. The last mm-hmm. person who lost was George H.W. Bush. Um, and in George H.W. Bush's case, he really represented continuity with uh, with eight years of Ronald Reagan so that there was a feeling that after 12 years, the Republicans had, had their chance. Since then, we've just alternated parties, you know, Republicans, Democrats, Republicans, Democrats. And this would be early. Now, in so many ways, Donald Trump's an extraordinary president. So maybe we can't look to precedent and really have a good judgment. But um, But I think that he has done a better job of firing up his base. He's had been a very um, aggressive campaigner. Uh, the media don't like him, but that's one of the reasons that a lot of voters who don't trust the media do like him. So I think uh, his unconventional style and the energy that he's brought to his campaigning, in contrast with Joe Biden, who I think doesn't fire up his base very much and who spent all, so much of this campaign um, not going out, not meeting people, um, not doing door knocking. It's just it, the old fashioned sort of rules of politics. Biden, I think, is a disadvantage. But as I say, said before, this is the first time we've had an election in the middle of a COVID crisis. This is the first time we've tried anything like this. So um, I don't know. Precedent might not be worth much. We just will have to wait and see. Chris, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ed. And uh, look forward to listening to the podcast when it's up. Christopher Sands is the Senior Research Professor and the Director of the Centre for Canadian Studies at John Hopkins University. And that leads to our unpublished.vote question. Which U.S. presidential candidate do you feel will improve 
Canada-U.S. relations. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Mark High, president of the Canada-U.S. Business Association, Frank Graves, president of Ecos Research, and Christopher Sands, senior research professor and the director at the Centre for Canadian Studies at John Hopkins Universities. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.